Gather up your best regalia. We're all strutting by azaleas. Party in that hot house round the block. Welcome to Fashion History with American Duchess, your podcast home for all things related to costuming, sewing, and costume history. We want to give a shout out to Dandy Wellington for his generosity in letting us use his music, Greenhouse Stomp, in each episode. If you like his music, you can find Dandy on Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, and iTunes, as well as jazzing up the streets of New York City almost every night. All right, now let's get on with the show. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Fashion History with American Duchess. I am one of your hosts, Abby Cox, and Lauren is sitting on the bed next to me in our hotel room at Costume College, chilling because homegirl is exhausted, uh, with our friend Chrissy as well. Say hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Yeah, so you might hear them like in the background with commentary or giggles, depending on how this podcast episode goes. So just a heads up, not being super creepy. There's just other people in the room because <laughs> this is actually our last episode of uh, recording uh, for this this like little mini series of Costume College because guess who was an idiot and left her laptop charger at home? Me. Uh, but anyways, um, the music you were just listening to uh, for our intro was by our friend Dandy Wellington and his band, Greenhouse Stop. If you like listening to that music, and I'm sure you do because it's awesome, uh, you can check him out on Instagram and Facebook, Dandy Wellington and his band. He's also on Spotify, iTunes, and pretty much anywhere you can find music or where you like to listen to music. But we're not here to talk today about Dandy, even though I love talking about Dandy because he's probably the best dressed man of all time. We're actually here today to talk about shoes with the official American Duchess and Royal Vintage Shoe Designer, Nicole Rudolph. Hello. Hello, Nicole. She's also a good friend of mine and longtime co-worker, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> conspirator. Um, and we're here to talk today about uh, women's shoes and the history of women's shoes. And yeah, we'll just see where this, this conversation goes. But Nicole, mm-hmm. all the listeners, yes, tell them. All about you, please. All about me. Well, I began shoemaking about eight years ago. I decided that I wanted to learn how to make women's 18th century shoes because I have problem feet, like so many people do. And um, basically, it was a matter of there was a workshop that was offered by someone I knew, Mm -hmm. um, Brett Walker, who was a shoemaker at Williamsburg at the time. And he was teaching women's 18th century shoemaking. So I took the workshop. I absolutely loved the process and decided I needed to keep doing that. Um, And so I became sort of an unofficial apprentice and then continued on after that, making women's 18th century shoes. And it was such an odd thing to do. Um, From that though, I started actually going and doing research at different museums all over the country, up in Toronto as well, trying to get a better understanding of what little information there is out there about women's shoemaking in the 18th and now 19th century. Um, I'm actually a graduate student at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in a costume history program there, and my thesis is specifically about women's 19th century shoes and all of the crazy medical things that go along with that, um, (laughs) which is surprising, but they claim a lot of things about high heels in the 19th century. Um, So it it gets a little odd, but that's kind of my background is coming from a shoemaking perspective and then trying to pull in the more academic and fashion related bits of that. Yeah. So um, let's just talk about shoemaking because I'm not gonna lie, and we talk about this all the time, like we each have our weird things that we're into, but shoemaking is the one thing that I just kind of go, nope, nope, <laughs> no, please, 
No, thank you. It is, it is not for like, everyone. No. So why did you get interested in shoemaking versus specializing in one of the other like rando things? Because like mine's hairdressing, you know, and like I'm into stay making and like other weird stuff, but mostly hairdressing and hair products. But why shoes? Honestly, is because it was challenging. Um, I've done sewing for a long time, so that well, it still presents some challenges. Just wasn't doing it for me I think yeah. I, I I don't know I'm slightly masochistic maybe yeah. um I always say so people like, why are you a masochist yeah people, people come up to me quite often and go what do I need to do to learn shoemaking and I'm like do you really actually want to do this because it it is not something for the faint of heart it is for the people that love hand stitching stay channels mm -hmm. it is for the people that look at an early 18th century men's garment with a hundred buttonholes on it and go yes <laughs> <laughs> and do all of them by hand and love it <laughs> It is, it is not for other, it really it is a, a suffering process in so many ways because it is so detailed and you don't get takesies backsies. <laughs> when you make a pair of shoes, you can't change it. Once you've done things, you can't change them. It's not like a garment where you can keep altering it. It's very much more like you are building an art piece and you're carving it. And once you carve that piece of wood away, you can't put it back. Yeah. And there's something just inherently challenging about that, and therefore, when I'm done with it, it's so satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know, it's it's a weird sort of adrenaline rush type thing that I just, I loved that challenge of it, but that is why so many people will try it and don't do it. Or I've known of quite a few people that have learned how to do it, and they enjoyed it, but it just wasn't something that they needed to do every day, all day. Yeah. <laughs> or say, one pair of shoes, I'm good, that was great, wonderful, I'm done. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I still just, like, every time you say that, and it's like, I know that, I'm, I just sit here and think to myself, oh, man, that's a lot of work. It is. It but is. But you're right, it's kind of, it made me think, actually, of a tattoo artist. You know, there's no takesy-backsies. <laughs> There is not. Yeah, I've seen some very <laughs> minor alterations. There's a lot of regrets, but no taxi yeah. backsies. I've seen some very minor alterations on shoes. I have seen women's 18th century shoes where they split open the area of the vamp over the toe and put mm -hmm. an inset in there, likely because the woman's foot got bigger. Yeah. Um, but they're very much a style choice. You can't just subtly do mm -hmm. that part. It's really yeah. obvious. So um, th that also made me think, because not only is it physically difficult to do and it's mentally challenging to do um it it's not actually what i want to touch on it exactly but i i do want to just kind of pass over it it changed your body actually yes um <laughs> it changed your upper body so mm -hmm. so you had to just by making shoes you gained muscle in your shoulders your back and your your arms biceps and triceps too yeah, forearms I, as well yeah i like to say it's like using a bow flex okay um the way that you're working you're working with two ends of a thread at the same time and so when you actually pass through the leather and through the the uppers to stitch them together you come back out and you're creating a little knot inside of this hole mm -hmm. but you got to pull out with both of your hands pretty strongly and so mm -hmm. it really is like working a bow flex machine mm -hmm. and so you build a ton of upper body muscle and you're also 
just like we do in sewing sometimes if we're not doing it right we hunch over yeah and that is even more so in shoemaking because i unlike sewing i can't bring it up to my face yeah i have to have it attached to my knee or between my knees Mm -hmm. you literally have a strap that it attaches to your knee with so it has to be down that far so there are all these complaints in the early 19th century where learning weird things became fashionable for young girls and Mm -hmm. one of the things that was kind of trendy for a while was learning how to do shoemaking yeah and there are a lot of complaints from the parents going we thought this was a good idea because then i'd save money on shoes (laughs) but instead she just ended up with really bad posture and it was a terrible idea (laughs) and a pair of shoes she won't wear because she cherishes them too much because they were way too much damn work even then yes when they had leading into my next question the tools to make shoes readily available right everything even like (laughs) Um, every lady her own shoemaker the first thing it says is go to your local shoemaker and buy a last and some tools and <laughs> where do you find those now yeah uh, yeah that's that is honestly the hardest part that I found in shoemaking is finding supplies mm-hmm. it's like the last that I I sometimes produce for myself if I need to but they're not meant to go long term that it also takes a long time it's a lot of wood carving and so I'm producing my own last and sometimes sending them off to manufacturers to have them copied so I can actually get a full run of sizes. But when it comes down to the individual things like wooden heels for shoes, I have to carve every single one of those myself. There is no one else that can do that yeah. for me. And they're unique to each size and each shape. So I can't have them mass produced in the same way. Even if I found someone who could mill those for me, mm-hmm. I'd still have to adjust them to fit each last that I do and adjust them to fit each individual shoe and they didn't have to worry about that because they were just making the shoes from 1785 and they had a few heel shapes that were fashionable and that was all they had to stock yeah I'm dealing with all the years so Mm -hmm. I, I don't get that choice um, so that's why I have two runs of lasts even. I have an 18th century meant for heel, and I have a 19th century meant to be flat. Yeah. Otherwise, your toe flips up like a little witch shoe. Yeah. Um, and you don't want that. So it, it's much more difficult to find the lasts, the heels, the awls, all of the other tools, which I sometimes find antiques on eBay, um, sometimes antique lasts on eBay. But you really have to search for these things, even down to the right materials, threads, leathers are not as good as they used to be. Yeah. Either they are just like fabrics are not as good as they used to be. Yep. Their leather on cows is growing too fast. The cows are too big and it stretches out. Um, so it doesn't work as well. And even we stitch with boar bristles instead of needles. Yep. That's what I actually was like. And I have Here's to... Here's the rando thing, guys. I have <laughs> to source my boar bristles out of Europe where they actually make brushes, like nice boar bristle brushes that you can buy for your hair. They only like to use the white bristles, so the black ones are kind of put aside and honestly very often thrown out. And so there was just this one guy in Europe that I guess was a shoemaker and managed to have like a whole supply of these and I got them through like two, it was a very long down the line thing. I got them from my teacher who got them from one of his teachers who got them from some guy who passed away in Romania or something like that. And I don't know where else to get them. Oh, so gosh. when I run out of boar bristles, oh, I don't know. I'll figure something out. Yeah. I'll find somebody. So it's stuff like that. Really nice. Uh, uh, lathering. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you need like really long ones. They're yeah. weird. So it's just, it is, it is a, exercise and frustration trying to find <laughs> all the bits um, that you need for this and that's why when people come up I want to learn shoemaking I will help you but good luck <laughs> yeah 
because so much of it is, where'd you get this? Uh, from this antique shop on eBay, from this one guy <laughs> who's dead. It's so <laughs> often the case of yeah. what I hear. So, okay, so basically what we've learned is that it's going to affect your body, it's going to affect your posture, and it's really hard to find the materials. But somehow you've managed to overcome all these things, <laughs> and you make shoes like it's, well, it is your favorite pastime. So, um, what is your favorite era to make? Like, what are you finding the most joy in or the biggest challenge right now? I'm Of the things I've studied lately, I've really fallen in love with the 1790s shoes because they are so wacky. Mm-hmm. Um, they go crazy with colors and prints on the leathers. Um, they do some really weird toe shapes. They do some really weird heel shapes. Um, obviously, my classic standard is 1780s. That's where I learned is the very early yeah. 1780s. And there's some really elegant, very beautiful shoes in that time period. But the, just the 1790s, there's so many shoes. I'm like, that is weird. And I want to make that to <laughs> understand what is going on with this thing. Because it just <laughs> makes no sense. And it's just like all the other fashion in the 1790s. Mm-hmm. It, none of it makes sense. It's all they don't. They don't know what they're doing. But it's awesome. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's almost so tacky. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So I, I've been really fascinated by that time period lately and, and the transition that occurs cool. um, with heels and shapes and toes and mm-hmm. leathers and embroidery and all the things that have changed. So you, you talked on leathers, and I think just to kind of bring this up a little bit because we were getting some questions when we released the new Kensingtons and even hypothetically well not hypothetically but with our new Sophie Mules as well well but mostly the Kensingtons because those came out first we, we released them in a lot of different colors and there were questions about colored leathers in the 18th century and is it historically accurate etc cetera, etc cetera. can you talk about that and because yeah. you are the one who who really knows this so like colored leathers when did they come into fashion what colors yeah, let, I, me, let me know all the details. Yeah, I literally have an Excel spreadsheet on this. Because <laughs> um, a number of years ago, I went through and looked at as many advertisements as I could get my hands on through the 1760s, 70s, and 80s, trying to find any references to women's shoes for sale that had any notation about what type of women's shoes they were. Whether it was leather, a specific type of wool, a calamanco, or stuff, or whether it was silk, or specifically mentioned satin, and whenever it mentioned colors in there. And while wool was definitely super common, leather very often had the colors mentioned alongside it. And it was Moroccan that was the most common reference was Moroccan, and red, green, and blue Moroccan over and over and over again came Mm -hmm. up and came up and came up. And when you look even at surviving shoes, you see red, green, and blue a lot, but you also see a lot of colored calfskins. So those come in just the full range of colors. I've seen bright yellows. When you get into the 1790s, it does get really crazy, and they go with pinks and greens that are unusual tones that are very that fit in with that time period. Yeah. But for the 70s and 80s, you still see that colorful leather. And like I said, you see that on surviving shoes. You see that on even men's house slippers mm-hmm. or things like that. And it's it really is everywhere. And it's not just a localized thing. It's not just a French thing. I was looking at a lot of newspapers that were in the New England area. And that's yeah. just what was constantly mentioned. They mm-hmm. only a couple times mentioned black leather. I think it was kind of like a standardized... Oh yeah, we'll have a working shoe available. Yeah. The no boring black no leather shoe that no, no one, one wants. No, yeah, no one goes in going, "Do you have a plain black flat?" Like you know, <laughs> today you expect there to be a plain black ballet flat in a in a shoe store when you walk in. It's like you go in wanting to know, do they have that 
exciting purple shoe. Yeah. And that was mentioned in um, Stolen things as well in terms of when you look at old bailey records like yeah. there are purple leather shoes or polka dotted shoes or all sorts of things like that um one of my favorite vivid color ones is basically like bright aqua with yellow um, yeah. binding on it oh geez um, that sounds awesome that yeah kind of, i think it's a european shoe and there's just there's some crazy things mm-hmm. and they could also paint the leathers too but you know Everybody shoes are not expensive in the 18th century during that time period. That that they're really around like seven to ten shillings per pair for women's yeah. shoes in the colonies, um, and that's a day or two's wages. Yeah, for a lot of um, people at that point. So they're not the cheapest thing ever, but that is very affordable. Yeah, and so you can afford to have fun colors because why not? Why would yeah. you buy the same pair of shoes every time you go and buy a yeah. pair of shoes? Yeah, two or three times a year at least. Well, I think that's interesting because we you know f- when we w- like as our, our let me get my words out our previous jobs and everything you know the black shoes and people just assuming that hey, people in the 18th century or just the past in general you know they were drab and they wore dark colors and or they take on the more vintage 1940s and 50s mentality of matching your purse to your shoes to your hat type of thing and your gloves when 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 you look at the imagery of the past it's very bright and colorful and i think another thing even though we do do leather shoes because that's part of its customer expectation we do have the the wool dunmore shoe and we often get asked about durability of that shoe but I find it fascinating because when I wore the Dunmores at my previous job, I wore the shit out of those shoes. Like, I put them through hell and back. And they were great. Like, they held up just fine. But I think people assume that fabric uppers are not going to be as strong as leather uppers. But, like, I know you did all this, like, your Excel spreadsheet. You were just like, it's wool all over the damn place. Yeah. And I've made all of those different types of uppers and I've worn through all of those different types of uppers. Um, but one of the fun, like really quick ways to sum it up is one of the wools that was really calming for shoes was called Everlasting. <laughs> and it really was meant to be. Those wools really are very durable. I've made quite a few pairs of wool shoes and it was not the wool part that wore out. Nope. It was the seams and the binding or usually the sole or the heel co- like cover part. Mm-hmm. It just something else wore out. Yeah. It took a lot of effort for me to wear out my uppers. The only ones that I really killed were my cotton velvet pair. Yeah. Well, that and, may, but you wore the crap out of those. Yeah, I and these are not like I wore these for a little bit. No, I wore these every single day for work walking around on paved streets which they didn't have to deal with that much wear and tear and i would wear them yeah for two years straight before Mm -hmm. i would finally realize that they'd given up the ghost and at usually somewhere around the one year point i might put on a secondary sole because Mm -hmm. it was starting to get thin right where i have a tendency to rub a very specific spot yeah i don't have an even foot Mm -hmm. when it comes to my foot but i have one specific spot that i wear through um, and so eventually I would put on what's called a clump sole to deal with that, but that's yeah. how your shoes can keep going longer. And it very rarely was the uppers. And, and I really did wear my shoes to hell and back. Mm-hmm. I did walking tours in them regularly. I did hundreds of miles in my shoes yeah. before they would fall apart. Yeah. Oh, I know. Oh, I love and, it. Yeah, it just takes good fabric, good leather. It's no different than anything else. If you buy cheap clothing, it's going to be cheap fabric, and it's going to wear out faster. That third time you put the t-shirt in the wash, it's going to have a hole in it. <laughs> Whereas if you spend a bunch of money and get a really nice organic cotton, whatever, it might, you know, it's, it should last longer. It should last, yeah. 
And so it's just a matter of quality and finding a good, mm -hmm. tightly woven, good quality fabric. Yeah. What was the most popular uh, upper for women's shoes other than wool? Calamanco. Calamanco, yeah. Calamanco. Yeah. Specifically, leather was next. And then I saw silk and then satin and then some other weird thing. odd things that came up here and there that mm -hmm. were very much... Uh, time period or trendy specific. Um, for those listening who don't know what Kalamanko is, can you explain Kalamanko? It's essentially kind of a glazed wool. Um, so in addition to the fact that it's fairly tightly woven and is very durable and sort of has almost like a twill sort of weave to it, it's really hard to make today because we, we breed our sheep too fuzzy. <laughs> we like fuzzy sheep, we like soft wool in our sweaters, and it really requires a very stiff, kinky wool to interlock because it's then glazed and heat-pressed. Mm. And it becomes very, almost waterproof, truly and honestly. Um, and so there really is none that's produced today. Yeah, that's truly correct. There are some that mimic parts of it. There are some that sort of fake it. There are some people that hand weave as close mm -hmm. as you can get, but even they can't get that breed of sheep. We literally have yeah. to bring back an extinct sheep in order <laughs> to make real calamanco. And yeah. you just can't convince people of that, shockingly no. enough. Um, so it it's not, we can sort of mimic it. There are glazed wools still today. Um, I have found some sort of calendared wools and things like that that have done well at imitating that. Okay. Um, so yeah. I've found substitutes along the way. Kalamanko is just one of those things that would love for it to exist. It doesn't really exist though. Yeah. It's one of our challenges. Yeah. Abby here. If you love what we do and you want to be a part of American Duchess, please consider becoming a patron over on our Patreon page. As a patron, you'll get early access to our videos and podcasts, special goodies like patterns and swag, and even the opportunity to have private chats with Lord and I. Thanks to our patron support, we now have professional editing and mixing, making a much better listening experience for you. We love our patrons, and we cannot wait for you to join us. Now, back to the show. So, okay, we talked about the your body changes, materials, uh, common uppers for women's shoes. Um, let's see. I'm like, where do I want to go next with you? Uh, <laughs> I want to go into your, like, your thesis work, actually. Um, fun facts about the 19th century. Yeah, fun facts about the 19th century. <laughs> but um, I think the heel. So if we want to talk about maybe just a really quick history of the heel in women's mm -hmm. shoes. Um, so, because we know that in the 18th century, women were wearing heels. But they do disappear at the turn of the century, and then they're kind of gone for a while. So if you want to like, just tell everyone a little bit about that. Yeah, we start seeing them get smaller and smaller throughout the 18th century, really very gradually over about 100 years. They just keep mm -hmm. getting smaller until they disappear. And they don't just suddenly go away and there are no heels. You still see some random heels even in the 18-teens. Um, so it's not like they're gone completely. It's, it's just a fashion choice. Most people prefer not to have them. There's a very em big emphasis on classical styles and Grecian sandals and things of that nature, so you can sort of see where that ties in. But the problem is that in the early 19th century with these flat shoes, they start making them really lightweight and really tiny, and they start getting really concerned that people are going out there and they've got cold, wet feet. And mm -hmm. in that time period, cold, wet feet meant that you got consumption and you died. So <laughs> it became, uh, consumption was a major issue in that time period, in the 1830s and 40s. Women's mm -hmm. I, uh, ideality was kind of frail and 
it's not that all women were by any means frail, it's just that was considered the ideal woman of that time period, and many women did subscribe to that. And so they had these tiny little thin shoes that wouldn't keep their feet warm, that wouldn't be comfortable in terms of walking on hard surfaces, uh, and they were assumed to be that was the reason why you got consumption. But in reality, they were saying, oh, because they wore these shoes to the ball last night and then walked home in the wet. No, it's because they're out of the ball at 3 a.m. touching people and eating off of the same plates. Oh, God, you were saying that earlier today, and all I could think of is, like, people didn't wash their hands after right. using the bathroom. And could you imagine being at a, at a ball where people are drinking booze and they're going to the bathroom a lot because they're drinking booze and then they're not washing their hands and then they're eating and then you're doing country dances with them and you're touching their hands. And it, I was just sitting there like thinking to myself, oh my God, that's so nasty. Yeah, and you're doing this till 3 a.m. So now you're exhausted. That's why you got sick. It wasn't the tiny shoes that are too thin that you wore home, but they, they didn't understand that. So yeah. we can look at it differently than they did. So they were thinking, well, it was the, they would usually get cold and tired and come home and they'd get a cold and then it would turn into consumption. Yeah. And so they thought colds, that's why we call them that, are associated with being cold and all of those things. Um, so it kind of led down that road. And so interestingly enough, when this is a major concern, there are some medical recommendations for a slight heel to elevate the foot out mm -hmm. of the dampness, out of the water, off the street slightly. Um, and that sort of kind of makes its way slowly into the mindset. And they're writing a lot of shoe, like books on why shoes should be this way, why shoes should no longer be straight last. They should now mm -hmm. be right and left instead of one shoe that molds to your foot and all sorts of other medical concerns about shoes. And so that starts to come up. And so in the late 1840s, they start talking about heels as a potential thing that's going to come back as sort of a, a good thing. Yeah. And by the time we reach 1851, the exposition that occurs in London at that time, they show heeled shoes. And everyone kind of is like, oh, oh, this is going to be a thing. <laughs> but is it going to be too much of a thing? So essentially, they start getting concerned that the heels are going to be too high. And yeah. now no longer are they a good medical thing. Now, now they're going to cause broken ankles and deformed toes. And eventually, as the heel height gets to what they term high heels, which in reality is only two inches, I've never seen references to anything. Whenever they're like, oh my god, the shoes are so high, they, they mention it as two, two and a half inches. Like, yeah. they got as high as two and a half inches. Oh, the horror. They got so severe in what they blamed these high heels for that it was no longer just foot problems or even hip problems or back problems. But they, I, I've read an entire medical talk that someone gave at a conference about how if you wear high heels your pelvis will shift and all of your organs will shift inside of your body because they didn't think they were actually anchored in any sort of way and that <laughs> the uterus was actually strung up in your body by tiny strands and it's supposed to move and flow and you're supposed to have airflow in your uterus you need oh, it to move around <laughs> and if your pelvis shifts all of your organs essentially pile on top of your uterus and keep it from moving and it will wither, die, and fall out of your body. <laughs> <laughs>
No joke. Wow. He says this, and it was not meant to be a revelation of I am trying to prove to you. He was saying this literally by saying, we all know this is what happens. We just need to talk about it. And there's literally notes at the end of other physicians responding to him. Yeah. And the vast majority are like, yes, we know this is a problem. And literally one of them says, this is such a big problem. I don't know what to do about it. Do you have any recommendations on what we need to do to get young women to stop? Though, quite frankly, I went to England where they don't wear high heels. And they those women walk so terribly ugly. I've never seen uglier women. But the women here with their dainty high heels, they look, they walk so pretty. They're so elegant when they walk in these high heels. But they shouldn't wear them. So in one breath, he's mm -hmm. literally saying why women are wearing high heels or one of the reasons there's a lot yeah. of reasons but one of the reasons and then on the other hand going they shouldn't yeah. so it's like thank you man for helping with <laughs> and it. also giving his man opinion <laughs> over what's attractive like, and unattractive the, the whole thing was just mansplaining uteruses and <laughs> high heels it was a great so it's it's intensely that sort of craziness and that that was not a singular thing they really believed all of that medically and so it was just crazy to see what they were blaming high heels they were they were just like corsets tight lacing corsets too tight of shoes in the early part of the century and high heels in the later part of the century I'm, were in every single sentence together they never just mentioned them alone it, it really is shocking how women were able to survive wearing high heeled shoes flat shoes and corsets for hundreds of years i mean like <laughs> however did we manage yeah. to keep the human race going with oh, our prolapsed yeah. uteruses all the uteruses all shriveled up and falling out of our body oh man yeah just constantly <laughs> i found actually apart. a few of them floating around the floor in the, in the <laughs> hotel this weekend yeah because of all the high heel and, and corsets yeah. on oh man the, the medical things from that time period just go absolutely crazy and that that was literally this all started with I wonder why high heels came back into fashion and when and trying to pinpoint that. Yeah. And it was just like, it got crazy so fast. I'm like, I need to write about this. So I, yeah. I've written um, just a specific project just on high heels that I'm, I'm planning on trying to get published. Mm, awesome. And then the thesis will expand more into not just high heels, but thin shoes and tight mm -hmm. shoes and the broader picture of why women chose to wear them despite mm -hmm. all of the problems that yeah. they supposedly had. And despite being told that you were not only going to probably die from it, but you were morally bad, mm -hmm. that men would not want to talk to you, that they should shun you for that, for being too, not just vain, but like for literally killing yourself. Yeah. They called women suicidal for wearing these things. They used that And they're like two and a half inches. Yeah, at most. Could you, you imagine if they saw women walking around in the shoes, like the stilettos that mm -hmm. women wear today with the platform, like like a one to two inch platform sometimes on the base of the foot and then like a six to eight inch heel, spike heel in the back. Like, could you imagine? Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's just, it's like, it's and it was so fascinating to me that corsets are so considered so terrible in modern society today mm -hmm. but yet we've made the high heels so much worse and that's we, we admit that it's bad for your feet mm -hmm. but we don't really go nearly as far as we would talk about how bad corsets are for your body yeah. um, so it's just interesting how we continued wearing them and so they kind of stayed safe yeah. In a sense, from Even that the, from that misinformation. Mm -hmm. Even though they cause people health problems all the time. Yeah. Like, people have feet problems yeah, all the time. Yeah, they do cause lots of feet problems. Mm -hmm. They cause problems with twisting your ankle. There is definitely a risk for that. And that's all very valid. But the idea that your uterus is going to fall out <laughs> is definitely on the more extreme side. <laughs> I don't think that was a reasoning for that. There are no. reasons for why that happened more in the 19th century, but they were not high heels. No. Just like, you know, a lot of a lot of births. <laughs> yeah, well, it was just really bad physicians um, who were not 
going through the process of no. dealing with women's births correctly. <laughs> and then it makes you more likely to have that problem. Yeah. But they didn't want to blame themselves for the no, issue. No, of course not. Let's blame something else. And they very much, they, they call, the, one of my favorite phrases is the, um, the tyrannical reign of Crispiana, which um, Crispin, St. Crispin, is the, sa yeah. the patron saint of shoemakers. So we call ourselves Crispins. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of slang for shoemaker. And so, yeah, they call them tyrannical. <laughs> so that that was a fun phrase. Um, so and all sorts of other very poetic things. Mm -hmm. They really are very poetic about oh. all the things that are going wrong in this time period. Well, that's, that's very kind of them, I guess. Yes. So, so, yeah. So, yeah. Let's do a little myth busting here since, since we're here and we got the time. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people like to use the term cobbler. Mm. So, can we please discuss cobbler <laughs> versus shoemaker? Because this you. is a big deal, y'all. It's a big damn deal. Cobbler versus shoemaker. Yeah. So, we're actually going to introduce another term in here called a translator as mm -hmm. well. So, a shoemaker, shockingly enough, makes shoes. I know doesn't make any sense um, but that's what they do they make shoes and in reality they don't even usually make the entire shoe not only is it parceled out where someone does each step of it more commonly but the uppers the fancy fabrics and things like that they farm that out to housewives and all sorts of people because they don't want to do that they don't want to do embroidery um, but the shoemaker actually assembles the shoe the cobbler takes old shoes and repairs them and they are not considered a real trade. In 18th century imagery, you see them having kicked the dog out of the doghouse mm -hmm. on the side of the building outside in order to get some shelter. And the dog's looking at them like, well, that was mine. So it is a very big insult, in a sense, to mix up the two in the 18th century. Um, in between the two, the term I mentioned is a translator. A translator takes old shoes, takes them apart, takes the parts that are still good, and puts them back together into a good pair of shoes. So it's sort of a middling job, but they have to have some basic understanding of shoemaking as a skill. You really don't have to know very much as a cobbler in order to slap a new sole on something. There's no art form to it in that sense. Um, so it was actually used as a slang insult to call someone a cobbler yeah. in the 18th century. So what that means, everyone, is don't call a shoemaker a cobbler because <laughs> it's actually, actually kind of rude. <laughs> yeah, there's a big difference. So, yeah. But it's, like it's no different things. than tailor versus, in the technical sense, yeah. tailor versus a seamstress. Yeah, exactly. And that sort of thing. And it's not saying that... It's not quite the same because seamstresses mm -hmm. are still very skilled in things. It's just yeah. cobbler was considered the lowest. Yeah, it really is like the lowest of the low. <sighs> yeah. All right, so let's talk about um, feet, actually, because you were talking about this earlier, and I, and I find it to be interesting um, because when we get customers, we, we're getting more and more people who are asking for wide shoes or they're actually not used to the fit of a snug dress shoe because of how of the shoes that we wear today. So it's always, for us, it's always this balance. And, and now you're a part of it too with design. It's trying to figure out the balance of creating a historically accurate shoe, but that fits a modern foot. So I'm curious for you to elaborate on how the foot actually works and and how our feet have changed over time um, because it is it is pretty interesting. Yeah, you have to remember that your foot is not really a solid object. We, we tend to think of it like that, but just like your fingers are made up of all the joints that run down, the bones that run into your hand are not fused together, your palm is able to flex and move, your foot is the same way. And the tendons that connect the joint of your feet, the joints of your toes together, they can stretch. So as you wear flip-flops and large oversized shoes or go barefoot all the time, your foot will stretch to fill the space. 
and it, it really does. And you can kind of force it back in, but that's why people today have wider feet. It's not because our feet have somehow, I don't know, evolved. It's because of the shoes we wear. And yes, there is something to do with overall weight that causes your foot to expand, but that's because with more weight, your foot spreads out more to deal with balance and those issues. So it really comes down to your foot is going to like the shoes that you wear the most often, and it's going to fill that space, and it's going to get used to that. So in the 18th and 19th and even early 20th centuries, people's feet were smaller because they kept snug shoes on. And they weren't necessarily painfully snug. They weren't torturing their feet. They mm. weren't binding their feet. It just meant that your foot didn't stretch and expand and didn't feel like it needed to get bigger to fill out the space. We're used to knocking around in our big shoes today. People are very used to being able to move their foot around inside of their shoe physically. But the shoes of the 18th and 19th centuries are, are like gloves. They fit very closely and it's not painful. It should be like a glove fits. It should be a, a gentle hug of, of sorts, but your foot really can't expand out from that. And so it just doesn't grow to get that big. So their feet stayed more narrow and in some places, in some ways stayed shorter. My grandmother definitely had that happen to her. She grew up in the Great Depression and they couldn't afford to get her new suit, shoes. So as a child, she kept on a pair of shoes until they were physically unable to go on anymore. So long past being uncomfortable, they couldn't fit her foot in anymore, and that was when they got her new shoes because they couldn't afford any other time. So her foot didn't grow as fast because it just didn't have the space to. It's no different than if, you know, where you wear your pant waistline. Yeah. You know. The you, muffin top yeah, of our generation. Yeah, the muffin top thing. Yeah. So it, our bodies really do fill that space. And I found with my feet, my feet were fairly normal. I was a very normal seven and a half when I was in college. And then I started wearing fitted shoes all the time. I stopped going barefoot around my house. I started wearing a fairly fitted pair of slippers all the time. And I am now a seven, really narrow. I'm probably more of a seven and a half in length. But because my feet are so narrow, if I buy a seven and a half, I just slip down until my toes ram up against the end of the shoe, um, which also relates to the idea of the toe shape really depends on your foot shape. And you can't you can't really get around that in so many ways. And people's feet got used to whatever was the fashionable shoe of that era and sort of molded to the fashionable shoe of that era. We, that's why it's hard for us to go back and forth between eras suddenly. Our feet may be really well suited to a square toe or a pointed mm -hmm. toe or a round, a more blunt round toe. And to expect him to go between all three of them day to day to day is asking too much of your foot in mm -hmm. reality. Like my, my toe shape, my foot shape really likes pointed. It's very yeah. comfortable in those. And that is horrible for some people. But if I were a blunt round, I, like I said, my, my foot slips forward, my toes hit that box area, and I find it very uncomfortable because I have a couple of toes that really stick out more so than the others. Yeah. And so I don't get a balance. And so I've admitted to myself, I can't wear those style of shoes. I, I have to go with the more pointed or at least a very subtle round point or something of that nature. Yeah. Um, so you, you can't expect every shoe to work for every person mm -hmm. because we're not used to wearing those styles. We're not used to wearing those cuts. And you, it's like you find what really works for you and your body shape for time mm -hmm. period when you do costuming. Some people really will never work for 1920s. Some people just automatically fit it mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. It's like you kind of have to admit that to yourself with shoes too. Yeah. And that, you know, you can try and make them as comfortable as you can for absolutely everybody. And that is always the goal is to make them as universally comfortable as you can. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it, it's going to be hopefully never painful. 
Yeah. But it might be uncomfortable or at least very different. If you had never worn a pair of shoes before in your life, any pair of shoes was going to be uncomfortable. Not painful, just weird. Yeah. If you've never worn a corset before, yep. it shouldn't be painful. It's just going to be weird. weird until you get used to it. But if you wear it, if you decide, I really want to mm-hmm. be wearing pointed toes and you just start wearing them every day, eventually your foot will be used to it. <laughs> yeah, you just kind of adjust over yeah. time. Yeah, totally. So, so you'll be finishing up your thesis here soon, and it's it's like you've kind of you've given us like a little sneak preview mm-hmm. over like the insane medical history yeah. of everything. Um, is there any other mythology around shoes that I've missed? Because I was like, okay, we have cobbler, we have like feet were smaller back then type of thing, which is like a yes and a no answer. Is there anything else mm-hmm. that I'm missing when it comes to to shoe and history mythology? Yeah, say so we covered the the 18th century shoe uppers. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know one of the things that comes up all the time is with the straight last shoes. Oh, that yeah. you're supposed to trade them back and forth to keep them from being a right and a left, which is a terrible idea. <laughs> um, we found, when I was working on a George the George Washington Tent Project a number of mm-hmm. years ago, which is a whole story unto itself, um, we d- managed to dig up the uh, military advice a military manual that said the soldiers should switch their shoes back and forth to keep them from wearing out. He also recommended a lot of other crazy stuff. So whether anyone did this or not, we don't know, but it sounds as equally terrible as all of his other ideas. (laughs) Um, And it really just, I don't recommend it. Once you wear that shoe once or twice, it's Mm -hmm. pretty well molded. And someone in my class today brought that up in terms of ballet shoes and how that's recommended still for ballet shoes point shoes and things like that but how if you don't switch your point shoes back and forth they're so much more comfortable well did you see um uh one of our friends i'm not going to name her name on here but she is a ballet dancer and she was like vigorously shaking her head (laughs) no she was like no like don't do it that's a terrible idea it really is and my shoes some of which i haven't worn very much are not really obvious but they start to slant over pretty quickly Mm -hmm. but i have some that i've worn really a lot and literally you can see the shape of my toes yeah. in the uppers. There is no way I could force it back in the other direction. Mm-hmm. You just can't. So that is one of those weird myths that sort of survives. Straight lasts are very comfortable. They're, I don't find yeah. them any more or less comfortable than right and left because they become right and left so quickly. So, yeah. All right. Uh, another one I thought of that you touched on briefly, red-heeled court shoes. Oh, yes. So they definitely existed. That was a thing in the court of Louis the the fifteenth, um, and it just it, it it's become so much bigger than it actually was. It was certainly a thing in that small, very limited space. But one of the reasons why we tend to think of it as everyone kind of wanted these things and they were everywhere, and honestly, why they're in supposedly in so many collections is because in the late nineteenth century they really idolized the eighteenth century, particularly the Louis the fifteenth the heels that were around in the 19th century they called Louis the 15th heels so they really loved that time period and they started making copies mm-hmm. they had a big thing in the late 19th century about see we can still do these trades just like they did back in the good old days yeah. and so they loved doing just absolutely insane work on shoes of tiny detailed stitching and over the top everything and the one thing they loved to copy were court shoes red heeled court shoes but there are quite a few in museum collections that are actually 
late 19th century, and I've seen some on auction websites and things like that. They're constantly floating around Pinterest, and they're actually late 19th century because they have bottle green leather lining, Mm -hmm. or they've got this, they're in patent leather, or they've got this really crazy pleated up tongue on the top, and all sorts of weird stuff going on. And it's like, no, those those are not at all 18th century. And so I think because there's something you see online, Pinterest-wise, there's something that has kind of turned into this magical, almost almost mythical mm-hmm. um, sort of shoe style. To the, It's just grown so much. And it's just interesting to me that there are so many faked versions of it, and we just haven't quite realized that yet. Yeah. And, you know, I've gone into museum collections and helped correct that before. Um, and there's... Usually they're fairly accepting of it, thankfully, with the idea of, no, actually your shoe's 150 years later. Um, it's yeah. not as, it's still special. It's still really unusual and it tells a great story now. But yeah. it's not what you thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> it has its own little story, but it's just not the one that you were right. hoping for. So, so yeah. yeah. Well, I think that covers it. Yeah, it covers a lot Thank of you. stuff. Yeah, we went like your, all sorts of all over the place yeah, with like your, shoes. Your introduction yeah. to shoe history. Yeah. Because um, I have a feeling there'll be a lot more, but they, yeah. get, they get really specific after yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. This is the basic so, intro, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Let us know. I would love yeah. to know like more weird areas about shoes that you want people want yeah. to know about. Like that'd be that'd be great for me. So that works. So if you all have any feet slash shoe history questions, uh, you can shoot them over to us at info at americanduchess.com and we will forward them over to Nicole and then we'll build up a next episode. Uh, So there we go. Uh, Nicole, for people who might want to follow you on Instagram, do you want to give them your Instagram handle? Yeah, my Instagram is silkandbuckram. Mm -hmm. Um, It's got underscores between those, so there's a separation. Mm -hmm. Um, And you'll still find me occasionally doing things under Diary of a Mantua Maker. I had a blog that is kind of gone idle. Yeah, Um, I do keep everybody's story. Yeah, yeah, blogging has kind of gone the way of the dinosaur in many ways. And I do have a Facebook page. Um, that I do sometimes post some things on, but Instagram is where I really keep that up more so yeah, than anything. Awesome. And you guys tag me and stuff all yeah, the time. You're so if you can't remember that or figure it out, just go search through things from Costume College and I'm in there a lot. <laughs> and then for those of you who might have missed in the beginning, uh, Nicole is our shoe designer. She's been working with us now for... A year. A year. Yeah. And so, yeah, your first collections came out last spring. Spring. Yeah, I did the American Duchess yeah. collection this spring and both Royal, American Duchess yeah. and Royal Vintage this fall. Yeah. And some other very exciting things yes. that we've got coming out, too. So, yeah, those sexy uh, Camille boots that you all will be seeing here oh. or maybe already have seen, uh, those are courtesy of Nicole uh, and other wonderful pieces. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We've been hanging out all weekend. I was like, we need to get a podcast. We need to get a podcast. <laughs> So there we go. And for those of you all listening at home, uh, you can find Lauren and I at americanduchess.com, blog.americanduchess.com, and you can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, American Duchess as well. Um, If you're interested in our more vintage styles, it's royalvintageshoes.com. Our Instagram is Miss Royal Vintage, and you can find us on on Facebook on Royal Vintage Shoes as well. Um, this has been an awesome episode, and it is the sun is going down here in sunny LA, and that means it is dinner time for us. So we're gonna sign off with some more Dandy Wellington. Woo! Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Fashion History with American Duchess. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode as much as we did. If you didn't know already, we're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter, All American Duchess. Our blog is blog.americanduchess.com, and our website is www.americanduchess.com. You'll find links to all of these in the description below, including links to our guests' website and social media. Until next time! Amen.